Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 8. Thank you, Stephen and Hannah. Always good. Music seems just to be getting better and better. It's always encouraging. John 8. So when you preach the Bible verse by verse, you have to preach everything that comes in your way. You don't, it's like when you're growing up as a kid, whatever's put on your plate, you got to eat it, right? Well, that's, that works the same way when you preach expositorily through the Bible. And that means I don't get to pick and choose, only the passages I really like and the ones I don't think are a little harder, I, I could skip those. And it's good, it forces us as a church to deal with every part of God's Word. It makes us look at parts of God's Word that we necessarily wouldn't in the past. I know as a kid when I was growing up and uh, I had a lot of required Bible reading, which is not always a bad thing when I was a kid because I learned a lot of good stuff. But I always picked the parts of the Bible I enjoyed. And as I got older and started reading the Bible, I was like, who put this in the Bible? Where'd that come from? And I started to learn about everything else that's in the Bible. Well, this is one of those sections this morning. So today is going to be a very different kind of a sermon. The first part is going to be more of me teaching and explaining some history And then the latter part is the actual sermon. So for those of you that are looking at your Bibles, if you have your actual Bible or if it's on your phone, do you notice some interesting brackets around John 8? Everybody see those? And you might even see a a comment in there from the translators or the printing over printing your Bible that this paragraph is not found in what? Earliest manuscripts. And then the kind of brackets that are being used are the kind that you would see when you're adding in a note that's not a part of the original content. What they're trying to say is, this story is not a part of John's original narrative, not at least in this section. Yes, I've been really looking forward to preaching this sermon for a while. Uh, So what's going to be fun, and I'm glad that we're finally here at John 8, This morning, we're going to talk about why it is that your Bible says that, how that happened, and you're going to learn a little bit about Bible translation and how we got the Bible, and then we're going to learn about how this story fits into the Bible, whether we should take it out or not. There's a strong opinion on either side that it should be left in and it should be left out, and we'll see why it's in there. And I don't necessarily, I'll I'll let you know up front, I don't necessarily think it's a part of John's original writing. I don't think it's supposed to be in there. But I'll explain to you why it's in there, and then I'll explain to you why I'm going to preach on it. So the church over the last five, or last 1,500 years has been handling the New Testament, uh, sorry, has been handling the, the written copies of the New Testament. Not necessarily a printed copy like we have. So when one of the New Testament authors wrote a book, for instance, For today's illustration, we'll use John. When John wrote his letter, he would then pass it on to the church. So it would go to, let's say, the church in Ephesus, and they would read John's letter, and then they would have copyists there, people that their responsibility for that church was to make a copy. And as soon as they made a copy, they would send that on to the next church, and so on and so forth. Well, over time, after that gets passed around, what's going to end up happening to it? It would end up withering away. Well, They weren't writing on paper, and not everything that was written was written on vellum or animal skin as well. It was written on papyri, and that papyrus is kind of fragile, and eventually it'll break down over time. Anybody ever felt papyrus before? It's almost like a cardboardish kind of a feel. Very common, very uh, available. Paper really wasn't invented by the Chinese until many, many years later, right? 
So they, after these copies get sent around and they get old, the original ones are going to eventually fade away. But what you end up happening, ha- having is multiple copies. Well, then a church would then make multiple copies that could be used uh, for different practices. For instance, in worship, they would have portions of the Bible that would be read to the congregation. And so that would be written out for them because they, they con- uh, let's say one of the um, apostles, one of the pastors couldn't stand up and read his Bible to them because that wasn't, they didn't have that. There was no printing press back in the early days. There was just handwritten copies of these manuscripts. So the books of the New Testament were preserved uh, for us by faithful, hardworking copyists. That's kind of how out throughout history, as the church began to expand, that's how it grew. To put this in perspective, when historians determine the history of the world, how things happened, they look at original manuscripts or manuscripts that are available, right? So they have to go back into the original language. So the Bible is written in Greek and a lot of different parts of the histories, uh, things that were recorded for the world history, they look at it in the original languages. They take these manuscripts and translate them to take them at face value to see what was recorded. So that's how we have a lot of our history of our world history that goes way back into ancient history. That's how we know what happened. Now, if we were to compare the manuscripts of the New Testament to other manuscripts of other ancient world works, the comparison is actually very staggering. So here are some manuscripts that were written about the same time as the New Testament. And the volume or that which is available. And the distance between the original, who actually wrote it, and how many copies down the road. Okay? <clears throat> so there are ten existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic War, which was composed in around 58 BC or to 50 BC. Uh, so very near the time of Christ. And all of these date, so these manuscripts, that these ten manuscripts that exist, all of these date to the earliest it goes back is to the 10th century. There's a big gap. So there's 10, and it's like a 1,000 years away from the actual original. Okay, And that's how we have determined this, this um, information about Caesar, Julius Caesar. You guys following me? So when the historians take this 10 documents and they write the history, they're assuming that this information is accurate and true for the most part. There are 20 manuscripts of Livy's Roman history which was written roughly during the time of Jesus. So 10 for Caesar, 20 for Livy's. Only two manuscripts exist for Tacitus' history of the Annals, which was written around 100 AD. So you guys are starting to understand the quantity here, right? There are only eight manuscripts of the history of Thucydides, who lived around 460 to 400 BC. So these are the, these are the most manuscripts that you could accumulate together as it relates to current history during that time period. Now, let's compare that to the manuscripts of the New Testament. I'm going to save you a lot of time and not break them all down. We're just going to clump them into one number. There are over 5,801 whole or fragmented manuscripts. Some of the manuscripts date as early as the 2nd century. So 1st century church... Just 100 years later, we have manuscripts that begin to tell us about, one of those being in John, tell us about what the original writers said. So comparatively, we have a staggering larger amount of manuscripts than any other book in history. Right? So this is important as it relates to John 8. I promise you, it's important. 
So throughout history, the New Testament or parts of the New Testament were preserved in libraries and monasteries. So you have them over time, they start getting accumulated and captured. And now we have them all captured electronically. So if you, there are actually places online you can go and look at the original manuscripts that have been given to us. No other books in ancient history come close to the kind of wealth and diverse preservation as the Bible as far as the New Testament goes. So all of this work that's being done, if you want to know the technical first of it, it's called textual criticism. It's where, criticism is not a bad word, it's where they actually look at the original writings of the text and make sure what we have, agreement is, an, is accurate. So there's textual criticism. It's good work, helpful work, not one that I'm necessarily interested in. Because you have to be um, more educated and smarter than I am. <laughs> I stand on the shoulders of these men's work. The original writers of the New Testament, Paul, John, Peter, were inspired and deemed inerrant. That's an important word. Inerrant means without error. Now this is where this is important as it comes to John. When John wrote his gospel on that piece of paper, that was considered by the church to be from the absolute words of God. It was deemed perfect and inspired. So these aren't necessarily John's thoughts disconnected from God. These are John's thoughts given to us by God. So that original document that he wrote on, the original one, is absolutely without error. Okay? Guess what? We don't have those anymore. (laughs) They are gone. So what we do have, which is probably not a bad thing, because if they did were available, we'd probably throw them into shrines and worship them, and that's not what we should be doing. What we do have are copies of them, multiple, multiple copies of them. The more copies we have, the more self-correcting they can be, right? So if I were to make a copy of a letter and I give it to uh, Brian, and then Brian gives it to Brian, and then Brian gives it to Eric. I needed one more Brian in here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then you know, it gets passed on to 20 different people. And if we were to look at it, we did our absolute best to make sure. And some of these documents are huge. We're not talking like five words, right? But even in that, we could probably get five words wrong because some of the guy's handwriting in here. But... 20 people, if we were to take it we, from it, we could get the general idea. And comparing it, we'd be able to, to summarize what the original should have said to almost a 99% accuracy. So, for instance, when, it, when you come down to John chapter 8, as an example, it would be hard to determine. So, like, for, here's, here's an example. So, if, there is, if we look at John 8, and all we have are two copies of John. Two original copies, two manuscripts. One has the story of the adulterous woman in it, and one does not. How do you determine which one's correct? Well, thankfully, that is not the case with any book in the New Testament. We have enough documentation to know how to make those decisions. Uh, This is a helpful... This is a helpful quote by F.F. Bruce. When you're talking about making a translation or making sure you have the right amount of of material, you're going to look at not only how old the material is, how what location it came from, because if all the manuscripts came from one location, which means they all probably use the same document, but if you have them coming from different locations, you can then compare it, which means the errors are going to be different. F.F. Bruce says this, if the greater number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, so more people doing it, more errors, right? It increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors. So that margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is, in truth, remarkably small. 
So there's no doubt that what we have here, I tell you all this information is so that you don't need to doubt what it is that's in here. It's very important that we understand. Let, let's just say we move the re- religious side of the Bible, okay? Like you're, you're not Christians, you're not looking at this as a, as a spiritual book. The amount of data that's in here to let us know whether the, what they wrote was true or not, that's not what I'm saying. But we do know that what these men wrote, this is what they wrote. There is no question of that. Whether you believe in that or not, most historians can agree this is what was written. So we can take great comfort in knowing that these are the truths of God's word and that we have lost none of them. Now, when the manuscripts differ with each other, it is not calling into question any major doctrine. So when you see some manuscripts that aren't agreeing, never do you come in. It's like, oh, all of a sudden Jesus isn't God. Or all of a sudden the Trinity isn't what we think it is. Or Jesus didn't raise from the grave. Or salvation isn't by faith. There's never a disagreement there, ever. So we're, there's, nothing, there's nothing to worry about in that, in that case. So as it comes down to, all of that to say, we're going to finally get to John 8. As that comes down to, so how do you take John 8, 1 through 11, as it ends up in the gospel. Well, a little bit of a history of understanding how Bible translations work. You see, most of us don't really think about how we got our Bibles. We just have them. And we think we've, the Bible's kind of always been this way. There's just newer translations. So somehow, like the King James Bible fell out of the sky. We don't really think about it. And then from there, it's been updated with easier translations to read. But that's not necessarily how it happened. So the New Testament is originally written in the Greek language, right? Koine Greek, which is actually a dead language. No one speaks it anymore. Now, think about this from a world history standpoint. The first printed Greek New Testament that came off of printing press was published by Erasmus in 1516. 1,500 years the church went without a Bible that was accumulated together, at least a New Testament, and printed having all the manuscripts in one place. Think about that as your daily Bible reading routine. Did not exist as it relates to how the manuscripts were available. These were all these copies and parchments of papyrus. Now this name is, uh, for those of you that know anything about Bible translation, the name of this text was called the Textus Receptus. It's a very popular text and used. Now, what I mean by popular, this, are, this is, I mean, it, it, what Erasmus did is really help change the way the Bible was available to people. So Martin Luther takes Erasmus's work, and guess what he does? He makes the Bible for the first time available to the common man in the, in the German language. So he translates it into German. And then William Tyndale comes in, and he, of course, under, if you don't know the story of William Tyndale, he comes under great persecution. He translates it into English for the first time, so we can have the English Bible. And then from this same uh, groupings that, that uh, Erasmus creates, we get the King James Bible and also the Geneva Bible. So the Erasminian edition was the basis for the majority of modern translations of the New Testament in the 16th through 19th century. So 300 years, this Greek manuscript was used. Now guess what was in this Greek manuscript? Take a wild guess. John 8. 1 through 11 was in there. And there's a reason why John's 
was in there. When Erasmus gathered his manuscripts, he did not have access to all of the available manuscripts that are out there. Right now, I do. All I have to do is go to Google, and all of a sudden, here's all of these manuscripts if I want to create my own. I can take them all, compare them, and make sure they're all accurate. He did not have access to that. I mean, this is talking the 1500s, right? So he creates the best that he can. There's some debate on that, whether he could have done a better job. His Greek manuscript sets the standard for 300 years. And the most famous book ever to sell more copies than any other book in the world, which is the King James Bible. So the King James Bible kind of becomes the standard over time for what is in there. So what do we get used to? There's, there, we, we used to seeing John 11, John 1 through 11 in there. Then all of a sudden in the 19th century, we started to find that in monasteries and different libraries, all of these manuscripts, someone made it their, response, their, their life's mission to go out, and we're going to get into the history of that, and find all of these older manuscripts. And as they did, they realized that the, there were older manuscripts that did not, older, closer to the original, that did not have them. Now, was there any major changes as we found those manuscripts? No. There's two major changes that we found. And trust me, one of them is a good one because it has caused way too much confusion. Anybody ever read the end of Mark? Yeah, at this church, we don't necessarily hold that the end of Mark is inspired because if you do, you and I are going to be drinking poison and handling snakes. And we're not going to be doing that as a church. So that somehow, later on in history, someone thought it'd be wise to add that in. But in the original manuscripts, that's not in there. Again, Erasmus, that's all he had. So he, really, he felt like that's part of the original. But as we compare it to the original, it's not in there. And then, of course, John 8 is the other major one. Now, why this section isn't original to John? Don't worry, we're going to get to why, what we're going to do with it in a minute. Please don't lose me. But this is important. This is helpful for you to understand and how you trust your Bible. Because the one thing that is under attack and has been under attack for the last 30 years is the veracity or the inerrancy of the Bible. Can you trust God's Word? Because you guys do realize everything that you live your life on and your eternity comes from here. So being able to trust this is uh, really important. And this is why a lot of churches don't educate their congregants on it. College students go to college. A professor who's really smart stands up and goes, you do know that there's errors in the Bible, right? And all of a sudden, their whole world comes crashing down because they don't understand there's how a Bible is translated. All right, just a little bit about why the translators thought John, this section of John shouldn't be there. These 12 verses, so from 53 on, 753 on, these 12 verses do not show up in John's gospel until the 5th century, okay? So if you start looking at all the manuscripts... 500 years down the road or 400 years down the road, that's when it starts showing up. Number two, logically it's missing. For the first 500 years, we could assume those commenting on the gospel would admit it, and they do. All of the earliest church fathers admit this passage. So you have the church who's now teaching and commenting and writing letters and explaining John's gospel, and guess what's not showing up in the first 400 years? John 8, 1 through 11. It's not showing up in the earliest writings as far as commenting. There is a better flow to the text from 752 to 812 if you leave it out of the story. And then when the story starts to appear in the manuscripts of the Gospels, this is a funny one. So if you look at all the different manuscripts that are available, sometimes it shows up in John, 3:30, John 736, sometimes it shows up in John 4, 744, and then other times it shows up in John 2125, and then it also shows up in Luke 2138. <laughs> so it's like we can't, they can't figure out quite where it goes. 
compared to the rest of John's gospel, this is another pretty convincing one, there's a lot of language, a lot of words that John doesn't use and, and sentence structure that he doesn't use either. And so it's, we're not convinced that John's the actual one that wrote it. Now, you have all that information. I tried to do that as fast as I could without losing any of you to, to go to sleep. Is it a true account? That is the big question. That's, that's, and that's one I had to wrestle with for a while. Does it belong in John? I don't necessarily think so because John did not write it. Is it true? This is a pretty heavy debate and this is what I'm going to answer to you and our congregation. I think it's accurate as it's compared to what Jesus' nature and his mission is. Uh, who wrote it? I don't know. The church at some point began to accept it, which is fine. Uh, so we, I think we are going to look at it f- as, a, as a way to encourage ourselves and to encourage our faith in Christ. Um, but when you see that section there, you can go, not sure where that belongs. And it is kind of a weird place. All of a sudden you have this flow and then poof, there's this story that's thrown in there. Um, but that's what I have about this. So if you have any other questions about that, you can ask Eric Locker. All right. Let's turn to John chapter 8 and begin reading. Now this, not only is this a strange section for it to land, and not only does it not necessarily belong in this place in John, not sure where it belongs, it's been misused for so many years, right? When uh, the president, Mr. Clinton, was in office, he had some questionable actions. And if you remember during this time, which I remember, this, the, this verse was thrown out all the time. So you have a president who is clearly uh, having some moral issues. And everybody is saying, ah, who's going to be the first one to throw a stone, right? Well, yeah, I understand what they're trying to say. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Do not judge people or don't, don't look at their lives and evaluate their life, whether they are worthy. If as a church, you don't evaluate my life and the lives of the elders you are actually not obeying the Bible. You are supposed to evaluate whether I have, in my character, live up to the level of one that's supposed to be leading you. You don't want elders who are trapped in sin and unwilling to repent of it. What do you think is going to happen to your theology and the preaching of the gospel? It's going to go down. So the idea that Jesus is standing up here saying, yeah, don't ever judge anybody, is not what he's saying at all. So we're going to clarify that here in a moment. But the original intentions of this pastures have nothing to do with how it's been used. So what are the original intentions? And that's what I always love about preaching, is learning what it is that Jesus is trying to do. So let's start reading it. They went each one to his own house. So uh, back up. It's going to be hard for us to jump right in here. So Jesus just gets done. I am, I am uh, come to me if you're thirsty. They get mad at him. Because he is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the rock of their salvation. And what is it they say? Let's arrest this man. And they all stand there and nothing happens. Which is always funny to me. It's like, all right, we're making the decision to arrest him. And then no one moves. So they clearly are upset at him. The the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are ready to pounce on him. But they haven't found enough evidence to do it. So what do they need? They need evidence. So this is the argument of why it should be in John. Verse 53. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now let's stop there and catch the scene that unfolds. So the scribes and the Pharisees are angry. This is uh, John 7.44, right? 
They couldn't arrest him. We know, that this story, we know that the motive of their story, so look, just jump down real quick. What's the motive of the scribes and the Pharisees in John 8? 8, verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So this whole interaction with this adulterous woman, we are, the, the writer tells us, they want, to, they want to catch Jesus in a trap so that they can take him to the court. When this crowd shows up with this woman, that's the intention. So they interrupt Jesus' teaching. So he's standing in the temple. He's probably telling them about the greatness of God and the mercy of God, all the other different sermons that we've heard from God. And these people interrupt it, and this is what, they, this is what ends up happening. Verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Now, stop right here. Most of us, when we hear scribe and Pharisees, we don't fully understand who these people are. We kind of group them into eh, bad people. Religious legal people. But we don't know who they are. Well, to truly understand the intentions of these people and to, more importantly, understand Jesus' response about throwing a stone, you have to know the character of what's going on. It doesn't, like, it doesn't make sense at all, and you won't be able to properly interpret it if you don't understand everybody's role and how the law plays into it. So we often... So, for instance, scribes. We often called, they, they were often called lawyers because they were ex, experts in interpreting the Old Testament. So a scribe spent their time really diving over the law, and they were the ones copying it and teaching it. In other words, it's kind of what they did for a living. So they were very familiar with all the rules and regulations of the law. The Pharisees were what I would call separatists or zealots. They consider themselves to be the conservative religious ones. So there's this gap between the end of the last prophet, Malachi, in the Old Testament, and the coming of Jesus. That gap's like 400 years. And in that time period, Israel kind of got loose. And they started to weigh the sway from the religious regulations that they should be participating in as a people. Well, there are the people who see this. They're called the Pharisees. And they decide to bring the Israel back on the straight and narrow. So they become very separate from the culture. They're trying to, to live. They're, 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 they're zealous for the things of God in their minds. But this is where we start getting a lot of rules and regulations. Like the Pharisees are the ones who come after Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath. So in their vigor... To reclaim holiness, they've gone too far and they start creating additional rules and additional regulations. It is helpful to note that not all Pharisees were scribes and the same as vice versa. So you have two different, sometimes, agendas. The scribes are going after one issue and the Pharisees are going after another. Pharisees typically are in Jesus' performance, right? And the scribes are going after Jesus' inaccuracy as it relates to the Bible. So now you understand these two people. What do they do? They're going to work together on this one. They're going to go after accuracy and performance. So that's the context that's brought to us in John, uh, John 8, verse 3. Look at verse 4. They say to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now much has been written about Jesus writing on the ground. It's the only time we're ever told Jesus wrote anything. And guess what? We don't know what he wrote. 
A lot of speculations here. And I think it's, I think it's wrong to try. I agree with Calvin here that there's no need to try and figure out what is being said where God remains quiet. And in this place, God is very quiet. But Jesus' action does tell us something. So he's teaching, clearly. These people interrupt his teaching. They ask him a question. <laughs> it would be as if in the modern day, if you were to walk up angry at me, and you want to get something clear, I'm going to straighten out the pastor, and you ask me a question, and I just pull out my phone and start looking at the internet. You would be, what is your problem? Why are you doing that? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He hears their question and goes, I'm not even going to acknowledge that. And he just squats down and starts drawing in the sand, starts writing in the sand. <clears throat> of course, this makes them angry because Jesus won't even acknowledge their stupid question. So what does verse 7 say? And as they continued to ask him, he stooped up, stood up and said to them. Now, I love that the author recorded that he stood back up. Okay, I'm going to finally acknowledge you. If you're going to keep pressing me, I'm going to finally acknowledge you, but you're not going to, he's going to completely flip this entire thing on its head. They have no idea what's coming. Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> so if he's already not acknowledging their question, when he answers them, he's not going to acknowledge their response. He just tells them, okay, here's your response. And then he kneels back down and basically says, I don't really care what you do. Most of us do not understand the Mosaic law. So in this interaction, we don't really know what's going on. We know that we know what adultery is and we know what stoning is. That's about as far as we go. What Jesus is doing is being very clever and he takes the very accusation that's being brought against them and flips it on its head because they think they're being perfect to the law and they're completely missing the point. Turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22. This is what Jesus is going to do to them. He's going to, he's going to demonstrate in their anger to try and trap him. They have trapped themselves. Look at verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman... And the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So stoning is not mentioned in this passage. It is elsewhere. Typically, that's of someone who's engaged and, inact, uh, and interacts with this. How someone should, someone should die in this scenario, we don't know. But it is possible this woman was engaged. It was part of God's law that these people not be sleeping around, should be faithful to their covenant of marriage. So God is not saying, oh, don't discipline people who are in sin. Be very clear on this. The entire interaction was a trap, and Jesus knew it from the beginning. First of all, he's sovereign. But secondly, he knows the law. They wanted to be done with Jesus and his teaching, and this was one of their best efforts. Here is how they were planning to trip him up. This is what part of it that we don't understand. If you don't understand the Roman culture and you don't understand the law, you don't understand the trap that Jesus is found in. During this time, the Jews were under the Roman province. They had freedom, for the most part, to keep their religious practices. But the death penalty could only be carried out by the Roman judicial system. This is why the Jews didn't crucify Jesus. They needed who to do it. The Romans, right? Right? 
So if someone was to be put to death for a crime in the Roman province, it had to be done through the Roman judicial system. Do you think the scribes and the Pharisees knew this? Yes, they knew this. This is one commentator who kind of summarized that I found very helpful. He wrote, The people who followed Jesus hated the Roman occupation, so, they, so the sly scribes and Pharisees laid a clever trap for Jesus. If Jesus were to say, Stone the woman, they would run to the Roman headquarters and say, This teacher is advocating that we exercise capital punishment without going through the Roman system. See the trap? So they're setting them up. Yep, she deserves to be stoned. Foul! Let's go get Jesus killed by the Romans. That way, they would get Jesus in trouble with the Romans. But if he were to say, don't stone her, they would run back to the Sanhedrin and say, this Jesus is a heretic because he denies the law of Moses. No matter how Jesus answered the question, he would be in serious trouble. So they thought they had the perfect trap. Right? No matter what you answer, you're wrong. That is the key to understanding Jesus' answer. He knew this was a trap, and he didn't want to acknowledge them. It's almost asking the question, can God create a rock so big he can't hold it? You know what I say to that question? Nothing, because it's a dumb question. That's exactly what Jesus says to them. And his answer ends up saying, okay, if you want to believe it, then here's my response. What is brilliant about this story, which most people miss because the focus is more on getting away with sin or how God just covers all sin, is how Jesus flips the trap on them. And this is how he flips the trap. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. This is where our part of understanding the law is helpful. Deuteronomy 17, 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. Okay, so not, you can't run up and claim, ah, I caught you in adultery, now you're going to take you out of this, uh, into the city, we're going to stone you. It has to be two or three witnesses. So you have multiple scribes and Pharisees bringing this woman. So we're, we're okay there. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death. And after the hand of all the people, so shall purge evil from your midst. You know what Jesus says? Oh, yes. But you forget that part of the law. You're the ones who are supposed to be stoning them, not me. So go ahead if you want. But he doesn't stop there. He takes it even farther. So Jesus never denies that this woman should be stoned or that she is not guilty. It's very clear. He actually considers her to be guilty because he tells them to stone her. If she wasn't, he would come to her defense in a different way. So he takes the very law that they are so passionate about defending as that it appears and uses it against them. They're so angry and so self-righteous and so blind to themselves that they want to trip him up. They will abuse this situation with this young lady, which really in the law as well, there's supposed to be a warning before the stoning. Stop doing this, don't do it again. You're caught again, you're stoned. Here's the catch they didn't see coming. The witness of the crime must be first to throw the stone, listen, and they must not be participants in the crime itself. Jesus is not saying this, they must be perfect. Because when he says, 
ye who without sin cast the first stone. He's not asking for sinless perfection. Because that would mean no one in the Old Testament would ever carry out any kind of standard. And that's not the case. We know that to be the case that they did. It means rather that they must be not guilty of this particular sin. From the story we know that they were guilty of not fully holding to the law because they only brought what? One person. What does the law say? Both are to be stoned. So first of all, they didn't practice the law. God nailed them there. So there may even be some form of male chauvinistic tendencies here. Maybe it's a man that they knew. Maybe he was really fast and ran away. Either way, they presented Jesus with a scenario from the beginning that cannot be carried out because the law says both must be caught. Here's the thing. It wasn't hearsay. They didn't see her walking down the road. They said they caught the woman in the act and did not bring the man. So historically speaking, that's important. Second, and more probably, and more probable of reason what Jesus is saying is when he says, if you are free from this sin, cast the first stone. Because that's what the law demands. So, if before God, what he's saying, if before God, you zealots, and you who know the law, do you think you have the right lawfully to kill this woman? Think about that. What he's saying is, as long as you're free from the guilt of this sin, go ahead and throw a stone. What do they end up doing? The trap was flawed because those people were full of... the. They were guilty, apparently, of the same sin of adultery. Some of them probably saw, well, we're guilty for judging a woman unrightly because we don't have the man here. So it says, from the oldest to the youngest, the oldest start first. Basically setting the tone of, there's no way we could stone this woman. So look at verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, being with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, remember, Jesus is standing in this crowd teaching. Typically, the witnesses would start the stoning and then the crowd would finish it off. So eventually, it's just Jesus and this woman standing there. And Jesus stood up and said to her, notice he, John, or whoever this author is, is recognizing the up and down. So he's standing to acknowledge her presence and speaks to her. This is the first time anybody's spoken to this woman in this narrative. Woman, where are they? Where's your accusers? Has anyone condemned you? Now, Jesus is not being rude here. He's not saying woman like we would say in our culture. That's, you don't approach people like that. And we talked about this a while back. When Jesus is on the cross and he's dying and he wants his mom to be cared for, do you know what he calls her? He calls her a woman. That Greek word that's being used there is actually a, a, a term of endearment. So he's not being disrespectful. He's actually being considerate and endearing to him. So he says, where are your accusers? Verse 11. She said, no one, Lord. No one. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Now it's important in this translation, the word here being condemned is a legal term. A legal term. What were they dealing with in this scenario? She broke the law, right? That's what they're dealing with. So Jesus is saying, I have no right to condemn you. I didn't catch you. I'm not a witness. Therefore, 
if they're not judging you, I have no right to judge you either. I'm not condemning you. To be clear, a lot of times we mistranslate this to think like, oh, well, Jesus just... It is true, and we're going to talk about that. From the narrative standpoint, if we're talking about a law issue, Jesus is saying, I'm going to obey the law here. I have no right to judge her. But, what does he do at this time? With this interaction with this woman, he still demonstrates grace to her. And in this grace, not only in the way he interacts with calling her woman, endearing himself to her, but he sends her on her way with grace saying, by the way, don't go back to this lifestyle. Don't go back to this lifestyle. Jesus isn't saying she's not guilty, but clearly she's guilty. But in the end, go and from now on, sin no more. Another words of saying this and rewording this is, leave this practice of sin. Such a response reflects Jesus' compassion for sinners and reinforces the very nature of the evangelist in John and also the other Gospels. But for the sake, because we are in John, John 1.17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through what? Jesus Christ. So this woman is flat up against the wall, not justly, unjustly, flat up against the wall, should receive condemnation by Christ. And what does he say? He gives her grace. Also in John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in, the, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Multiple interactions with this type of uh, scenario with Jesus. The woman at the well, what was she known for? The same Issue. This is why I would consider it to be probably an accurate account that happened with Jesus. What does the woman at the well end up doing? She tries to hide it. God exposes it. And instead of condemning her, what ends up happening? He gives her grace and tells her to not do it anymore. And she goes fully free from the condemnation. Uh, The woman in John 7.47. She's known as a harlot washing the feet of Jesus, weeping at his feet. And what does Jesus tell her? Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. We stand condemned before Jesus. Every scenario where you see people stand fully caught, exposed, they know that they are without excuse, fully condemned, He sees all of our sins, all of the time, and there is nothing hidden from him. And what does he say to us? I don't condemn you. Because that's not why he came. He did not come to bring wrath for us. He came to save us. This is why the sweet refrain from Paul is so precious when he says, now there is no condemnation for those who what perfectly obey the law no for those who are in Christ Jesus Jesus proves that he's God and that he has the right not only to condemn them but does not and the other way he proves that he's God and this is where the Pharisees and Sadducees get really angry with him he proves he has the right to forgive sins he claims the authority of from God 
To for, this is why the woman washing his feet and says, woman, your sins are forgiven. Sitting at the table, they said, who gave you the right to do that? And Jesus says, my father, because I am God. And all the complications of the text, and, uh, is it in here, is it not in here? There's one thing that I can draw from this. One, I do believe that it is an accurate representation of who Jesus is. And number two, it's a glorious reminder that in my exposed sin, standing naked before God, not able to hide myself, Jesus comes over and he clothes me before the Father with his righteousness. He clothes me with his position as a son. And you as a daughter. And we stand there without condemnation. Did this woman do anything to receive grace from God or from Jesus? She went from the exact act to forgiveness like that. There's nothing in the text that there was remorse. She pleaded for forgiveness. Nothing. Yet God demonstrated the grace because it's not something you earn. It's not something that you can work for. It's something that's given to you. So when someone uses this wrongly, don't get angry at them. Don't try and correct them. Just give them the gospel instead. <laughs> give them the, use it as a, a, a glorious means to say, oh no, don't get this wrong. God's not saying there's nothing wrong with sin. Because you will be condemned for that, and you are condemned for it. But those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But those who are out, full wrath. So to be clear, Jesus is not okay with us living a life of sin. You will pay for that. But if you don't want to pay for that, and you want freedom from that, then we live in condemnation with Jesus Christ. You know what the command at the very end can be confusing to people? Because he's saying, go sin no more. Well, don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying. In this entire context, what are we talking about? Her entire life of sin or this particular act of sin? It's this particular act of sin. He's speaking about this life. Don't, don't do that. You know, the reason why I think the gospel should be emphasized, preached, and pressed into our heart, and I mean the whole scope of the gospel, is because it reminds us what we have been freed from. You've been freed from the bondage. You've been set free out of the prison. So every week when we come back into this room, we have to be reminded that we don't have to stay in bondage. There's been freedom from it. I know that in my own heart, in my own mind, I need the prison door opened. Hey, look, it's open, right? There's no lock. And not only that, you have the ability to leave this prison. But the moment you stop emphasizing the gospel and the moment you stop emphasizing your freedom, it is our nature and it's our sin nature to find ourselves back imprisoned trying to get ourselves out of the prison on our own. And this is why Colossians, combine the books together, Colossians says that the works of the flesh are of no value of stopping us from sin what does he say in verse chapter verse 1 chapter 3 if you have been raised with christ look to the things above where christ is seated 
So what Jesus says is he frees her from a condemnation and then now says, oh, by the way, you don't have to go back to this life. You've been freed from that. That is a message that I want to hear. That is a message that I want to sing about. That is a message that I want to live for, from freedom, from assurance, to the glory of God. And when I am trapped in my sin, which happens as believers, I need to be reminded once again that I don't need to be trapped in my sins. Men, let's get ready for communion. Father, we come as this woman. We have been caught. We hide it from each other. We hide it from the world around us. We appear, living here in the South, that we have, our lives are somewhat in order. But if we were to stand in the light of God's holiness and your holiness, all would be exposed. This is John, the next part of John 8. Jesus tells us that he's the light of the world, that in this light all darkness is exposed. And when we are exposed, we cannot hide from you. And it is at this moment that we remind ourselves that it's the blood and the body of Christ that brings us to be whole and without condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen.